We are going to interrupt this relentless record of violence and bloodshed uh, for a moment of mourning, and then we're going to get right back to the bloodshed, because I know you ladies will start to miss it if we stay away too long. Um, yeah, we'll get right back to killing people. So, um, chapter... Oh! Wait, I don't have my Bible. I'm putting you on... Look at A sister laying down her Bible for me. Um, okay. So, anywho, uh, lately, uh, a couple weeks ago, Scott and I went over to Eastern Washington. It was time to move his parents into assisted living. Actually, it was past time to move his uh, parents into assisted living. So you know his mom has Alzheimer's, and then his dad had a stroke a while ago, and now has this cognitive impairment. Gene is supposed to be the one who knows what's going on, comparatively, but I got there, and he said, oh great, you can help me print out this thing on my computer, I can't get it to print. I said, okay, so, because I was there first. So I went, and I figured out what was going on with his printer, and then he said, well, Christina is coming today, and Scott is coming today, and I said, Christina is here. And he, he said, he got this look on his face, and he said, I thought, I thought he thought I was the caregiver. Now, Scott and I have only been married for, what, 23 and a half years? I've only popped out three grandchildren. But this is the nature of, of the problems. And, but, and I was not completely offended because later the caregiver came and she was Latina and she had black hair like me, that hence I look like her, I guess. She had black hair. She was 25 years younger than I am. Yeah, yeah. And she showed me a picture of her boyfriend because we spent the whole day chatting and she had a hot boyfriend. So I was like, okay, there are worse things than being mistaken for the Latina 23-year-old caregiver. Um, Anyways, but you know if any of you have relatives with dementia or other cognitive impairment, it's like losing people very slowly or very quickly, you know. I mean, there I was, I was gone. He recognized me later and he was like, after I said, I'm not, I'm Christina, you know. Then he was like, oh, oh. And I couldn't tell if he was then pretending to recognize, whatever. Anyways, but um, yeah, so we have had these conversations with the kids about we want you to remember your grandparents. Do you, re do you have memories of your grandparents before they turned into these completely adult people? You know, do you have memories? And so we've been, and of course they do, especially the older ones, but even Lucy, my youngest, we say, you know, well, remember they took you on an elder hostel and remember, and, and just kind of working on these memories with them. Um, just to make sure that they stick and the people they were stick in their heads. That, you know, your grandpa didn't always pick up the TV remote and try to make phone calls on it, remember? So, so you look at David's situation and you know, what you feel toward those who are lost to you is often a mixed bag, right? Uh, so Saul spent years pursuing David and trying to kill him, but Saul was also the king who noticed him, Saul was the king who tried to lend him his armor. Um, Saul was the king who appreciated and recognized David's musical talent, right? Saul was the dad of his best friend. And, um, and he was, of course, David's own father-in-law, right, at some point. So, so for David, David has a lot of mixed emotions when it comes to Saul. And you know, when somebody is then dead, 
you try to remember the good stuff, right? And try to put aside the bad stuff and remember the good stuff. So for David to remember Saul musically is an acknowledgement of David's innermost heart and the connection they shared at one point. Um, two weeks ago now, Kristen gave some reasons for David to write this elegy to Saul. I will remind you of them, right? To demonstrate trust in God, to memorialize the good things that Saul did, right? He says, remember gals, he, he had you all, he, because of him you had nice clothing and ornaments and that kind of stuff. And um, to show his forgiveness for Saul and to show respect for God's anointed, right? I'm just gonna add a couple things to this list because of the mixed bagness of everyone, right? Um, and I think all the mixing in the bag of David should be encouraging to the rest of us. I was speaking to the widows group recently and encouraging them to write their stories. And there are many reasons to write your story. One is that if you don't write your story down, everybody doesn't remember your story when you're gone, right? But the other is you get to tell your story, right? You get to tell it from your perspective and, and this is how you want to be remembered. And so, um, and I think that is part of David's motive in writing this elegy as, as well. He wants to get his say in. This is how it all went down, right? So I think he's got some other reasons. So again, he wants to show that he really did love these men. He really did love them, okay? He wants to make that clear because of course, if one of the men who's dead spent half his life trying to kill you, people might doubt that you actually love this guy and mourn his death, right? Um, he is now trying to put himself in the position of leader to the people, so he wants to acknowledge the tragedy on a national and a personal level. I was, the closest thing I was thinking of is, I was thinking, remember on 9-11, and luckily we are old, all old enough to remember 9-11, um, remember George Bush was like reading a book somewhere in Florida or something and then they whisked him away on Air Force One? But everybody wanted to know, where is the president? Where is the president? This horrible thing is happening to the, co the country. We need to hear from the president, right? So this horrible thing is happening to Israel. They've, they've lost faith, they've lost battles, everybody's dead, you know, there's chaos. And so they want to hear from the leader. So David is trying to say, trying to put himself in a position of leadership and say, okay, you know, it's gonna be okay. Um, also, he has to distance himself from any hint of wrongdoing towards Saul. You know, if you get a new king and a new dynasty, there's always gonna be some um, friction at the transition. And so David needs to make sure, like, hey, I'm legitimate, I'm totally legitimate, and I didn't have anything to do with Saul and Jonathan getting killed. I had nothing to do with it, right? So he's distancing himself. And also, I think he is sharing his heart with his people in the way that reveals most of his heart. If you haven't gotten, if you haven't noticed um, from just our reading through David's life, he's a little opaque, right? If it weren't for the Psalms, we wouldn't always know what is going on with David. What is his motivation here? How is he feeling? Because he, you know, Jonathan's like, I love you, I love you, I love you. And David's like, uh-huh. You know, and he's nothing, right? Everybody, David, everyone seems to give and give to David, and he's very hard to see through. So I think this is a way for him to say, here's what's going on in my heart, which is a big thing for him to do, because 
clearly it was the way he did it best. If you look at the Psalms, the way he expressed himself best was writing these songs and in music. He felt more comfortable sharing who he was. Okay, so David, of course, had the most to gain from Saul's death and from the death of most of Saul's house, right? Everyone else who might be king. So David needs to distance himself from the situation and convince everyone how much he loved and respected both the house of Saul and the monarchy itself. And this is noteworthy because, as we'll see, David's final march to the throne is pretty much marked by bloodbath after bloodbath. And he's always, always, always trying to prove that his hands stayed clean. This becomes a common refrain in David's life. I remember when he married um, Abigail, right? And, and she kept him from, uh, from one of the bloodbaths, right? He was ready to leap into. And so it's always this question of, oh, is, is he innocent in all this blood that's being shed? Okay, so we're going to read the elegy. Oh, it's a long elegy. We're going to read it at high speed. So hopefully you've read it yourself. Uh, this is starting in verse 19 of chapter 1. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. Ooh, we don't often get a rhyme in the English. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. They were warriors. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. And in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Okay. Um, just a little note on the line, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. So this whole idea, and the shield, um, and by extension, Saul, right, and there's a, there's a word for it, English majors, it's escaping me. Is it metonymy? There's a word where you take the thing and it stands for the whole, right? So he's taking the shield, and so that stands for the whole of Saul and the monarchy. The shield is unanointed. So the land is, by extension, Messiah-less. We have no one anointed leading us. Okay? So he is mourning that. And as Kristen pointed out, when a nation was defeated in ancient times, their God also lost faith. Um, David may know personally that the Israelite God is not defeated. Right? God already has his next plan, and it's in motion. But to the rest of the world, it looks like God is defeated. Um, and Israel will face this time and time again. So this um, situations where it seems like their God has lost faith. So David's elegy reminded me a lot of Lamentations. You remember uh, where Jeremiah, after the, after the conquest and all the people are taken away, he's, he's you know, wandering around Jerusalem depressed. And, um, and it reminded me, and, you know, how, how, how still lies the city and everybody's dead and isn't this horrible. Um, 
And it also reminds me of some of the Psalms and the prophets where God has seemed to abandon them. And God turns away his face and other people are jeering like, <laughs> look at your God, right? Think about a Psalm, for example. Oh, that's not the thing. Now I'm, now I'm like my father-in-law. Like, <laughs> it's happening, ladies. Okay. Oh, I didn't show you that either. Um, oh, the elegy. Yeah, that would have been helpful. Okay. Okay, so Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer, O Lord my God, lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, ha ha, I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You know, so many of David's psalms follow this line. Things look horrible, but I know God will come through and he will triumph and he will rescue me. So this would look like a turning point, right? The obstacles to David's path to the throne are removed. And maybe now it's going to happen. He's going to be king. Um, unfortunately for the beleaguered David, Saul's death does not mean that David's long slog toward the promised throne is a done deal. I mean, after all this, and quite the opposite, as we will discover in the very next chapter, right? The king is dead. Long live the king. But who is the new king king of? Right? This is one of the main questions. Where is the new king supposed to go? Um, how does the new king get others to acknowledge his kingship? It's amazing to me that this thing has been written in the cards for years at this point, for years. And it still has to be figured out, and it still has to be puzzled out step by step. And it, that should be comforting to us, right? This is life. Uh, we may know in the most general sense God's will for our life. Love God, love our neighbor, right? Ta-da, that's God's will for your life. You always wonder. But what does that mean day to day? What does that look like? How do we get there? Each moment still has to be lived. Each choice still has to be made. Um, and, and each person's journey to that goal will look different from everyone else's. So David starts with the obvious. Okay, well, I guess I should be the king of Judah, right? I'm from the line of Judah. They're least likely to kick up a fuss if I say I'm their king. So, um, so in 2 Samuel, right, after his long exile among the Philistines, he's been hanging out with Israel's enemy, if you remember, um, he comes back and he inquires of the Lord, okay, where should I go? And they take their Urim and Thummim right and throw and throw all these yes, no questions and aha, he should go to Hebron, right? You should go to Hebron and that should be your base. So he goes up to Hebron. Okay, here I am. I'm king of Judah, at least, in Hebron. And then he starts his diplomacy efforts, right? He sends out his first olive branch to people who may or may not appreciate him. And that is the people of Jabesh Gilead. We have talked about this town before, but there are so many towns that have bloody histories that you've probably forgotten. But um, in Judges, Jabesh Gilead was the town that got in trouble because when all Israel went out to war against Benjamin because of the cut up concubine, remember her? Um, all Israel went to war against Benjamin, but everyone at Jabesh Gilead didn't show up. So then everybody got mad and said, you know, we were, this was supposed to be a team effort. You weren't being a team 
right? So they go and they want to kill everybody there, and then they're like, but wait, if we wipe out everyone from this town, then there'll be this town will disappear from Israel. So, okay, well, here, you we'll take all these women from Benjamin or whatever and there, save the town. So that was Jabesh Gilead, right? And then in 1 Samuel 11, they got attacked by the Ammonites. And if you remember, it's Saul who saves them. So this town has two ties to the tribe of Benjamin, right? They intermarried with them, and Saul rescued them when they were in trouble again. So this is a Saul-loving town. So for David to offer the olive branch there is kind of risky. He's like, I know you're a really Saul-loving town, but I hope you'll like me too. Vote for David, right? Um, so David tries to get on their good side. He praises them. You know, now in 2 Samuel 2, 6, he says, Now may the Lord show love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have taken good care of Saul's dead body. Right? After Saul was dead and he got hitched up for display, they rescued Saul's body. Um, so he says, because you did this great deed towards Saul, I want to show God's love and faithfulness to you. Okay, we do not hear at this point how Jabesh Gilead responds to this overture from the enemy of Saul, the supposed enemy. But the other followers of Saul, his family, respond predictably to this upstart, right? Um, they take Ishbosheth. I, I found a family tree. So you won't be able to see it from where you sit. I'll describe it a little. But, um, oh, and I found, wait, okay. So Saul has all these sons. There's Saul. Here are all his sons. Here's Jonathan, the first one. And Scott preached about Mephibosheth on Sunday. So you can see Mephibosheth comes from Jonathan. But there was still a son of Saul himself left alive, Ishbosheth, right? So naturally, the followers of Saul said, well, we're going to take Ishbosheth because he's Saul's, he's the king's son. And um, we're going to make him king in Saul's place. This makes perfect sense, right? And the one really in power, though, is Abner. Big red arrow. So if you look at it, Abner is actually Saul's uncle, okay? Abner and Kish were brothers, and Saul was the son of Kish. So Abner is the general, and he's the uncle, and he says, no, 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 the king is Ishbosheth, but meanwhile, I'm going to kind of run things, because Ishbosheth, he doesn't really know what's going on. Okay, so it's kind of like this military coup, but they have a figurehead king. And um, like so many wars for thrones in history, you have families fighting among, different branches of families fighting among themselves for power. So Saul's general is, um, is his uncle, right? And the other general, I have another chart for you, is actually David's nephew. So here's the David one. You really can't see this one. David is the white block. And then you can see Two over, he has a sister named Zariah, Zariah, whatever her name was. I'm sure everybody called her Zero, just for short, because that's a tough name. Um, and Zariah had three sons, and one of them was Joab, the middle son. And then we're going to meet that other son, Azahel, soon, and poor Azahel. Doesn't, we don't hear from him for long. So, so there we go. We have the two warring families, and we have the, the generals, our family members. So Joab is David's nephew, 
and Saul's general is his uncle. Okay. So J David is ruling over Judah in Hebron, and Ishbosheth and Abner gradually consult. They go to Mahanim, which you might remember from earlier. Saul liked that place. Um, they kind of consolidate the other tribes and alliances against David. Okay, so then we have a stalemate, right? Um, and then we have this weird passage. I'm going to read it. Well, I'll read it. Yeah, here we go. Let's see. So we got the two camps. And then in verse 12, Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. And then they have this combat, and lo and behold, everybody dies, right? Um, has anybody seen the movie Black Panther yet? Very good, very fun movie. Um, but there are these scenes of ritual combat, right? Just like with David and Goliath. Instead of having everybody fight, you pick a one person or a couple people from each side to fight it out, right? So something like that is going on here. You have these two warring camps, and they're like, let's watch the young men fight. And of course, the young men all kill each other, and then there are hard feelings. And I don't know, as women, we may feel like, duh, right? But that's not going to solve anything. But somehow, men throughout the centuries have always felt like this would be an effective way of dealing with this, these feelings. So anyways, there's some kind of tournament, and the men go head to head. They, they fight each other. They all die. And then both sides get angry, and civil war breaks out. Okay? The battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So everyone's blood is up. Now everyone's mad, right? And lo, another one of David's nephews, little Azahel, um, the brother of General Joab, he gets pretty worked up by this whole combat thing, whatever was going on there, and he starts sprinting after General Abner, right? Ugh. General Abner seems to be defeating, maybe regrouping, deciding what he's going to do next, but Azahel starts running after him. Okay, so starting in verse 19. Oh, no, yes, 19. He chased, oh, look, no, let's start in 18. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Now, Azahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Azahel? It is, he answered. He probably wasn't even out of breath, right? It is. Then Abner said to him, turn aside to the right or to the left. Take one of the young men, take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons, right? You're looking for glory. Why don't you go beat up that kid over there? Um, but Azahel would not stop chasing him, right? Azahel wanted the top prize. Again, Abner warned Azahel, stop chasing me. Why would I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Azahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Azahel's stomach. And the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died. Okay, 
I'm going to stop there. So Abner, to his credit, seems to be saying, look, kid, there is no point in chasing me because I will be able to kill you. I'm more experienced than you. And that will start a blood feud with your brother Joab, right? But Azahel, I assume he's pretty young here. And the reason I assume he's pretty young is because he can still run like a wild gazelle, right? And because he doesn't seem to be thinking things over very clearly. So the brain is not fully hooked up yet. So Azahel is like, nah, you know, I'm gonna, he keeps after him, and sure enough, he gets killed, right? <sighs> I'm sure Azahel's mother. So I found a little picture. There he is. So Abishai stops running, right? And of course, Azahel barrels into him and gets the spear right through his gut. And that's the end of him. Um, so yeah, and then we get a blood feud, because that's what happens, right? Azahel's brothers, Joab and Abishai, then have to go after Abner. But they reach a point in the hills where Abner's forces have regrouped, and Abner says, don't you know this is going to end badly? And Joab says, yeah, yeah, we're kind of not prepared for this full vengeance thing. So he sounds the retreat, they pick up Azahel's corpse, they go back to Hebron. But we will see this is not the end of the blood feud, right? Um, Joab has just pulled back for the moment, but he has not forgotten that he has got to get back at Abner for killing his little brother, even though his little brother was being an idiot, right? He's got to get back at him. And we will see what he does in the next chapter and how David gets sucked into the bloodbath. So, okay, we have talked about revenge before in this group. Um, we all look like mild-mannered women, but we love revenge. People love revenge, right? If we didn't, it would not be so widespread across cultures, and it is. It, revenge is universal, the desire for revenge. Um, we wouldn't have so many expressions about it. I was thinking about them. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? Get your revenge. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Living well is the best revenge, which is kind of a mild one, right? Like, just have a happy life. Um, don't get mad, get even. Right? Revenge is sweet. Right? We love revenge. Um, I was reading a book about the Cherokee, of all people, and they also share this culture of blood feuds and have the same problem. So-and-so kills so-and-so, then you've got to go kill so-and-so's brother or so-and-so himself, right? And so then you have this ping-ponging back and forth, Hatfields and McCoys, everybody's, mafia hits, everybody's got to kill each other, right? The desire for re revenge is human, which is why it is very unsatisfying to humans to hear God say in Deuteronomy 32.5, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. That is not satisfying to us, right? He says, in due time, their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. That's Deuteronomy 32.5. But we think, Lord, we would like to help their foot slip. Right? May we help the day of their doom rush upon them. Um, you know, Lord, what about until then? What are, I don't like to see this person looking okay who hurt me so badly or who hurt my loved one. If you're a mother, you know that you can stand things done to yourself, but if they're done to your kids, you're really ready, to, ready to whack people around, right? Or your grandkids, right? So we want revenge. Um, and even worse than waiting for God to get around to dooming someone Jesus says this in Matthew. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And if anyone would sue you and take your coat or murder your little brother, right? Let him have your other little brother as well. <laughs> let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who begs from you and do not refuse from him who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even tax collectors do the same, right? Anybody can love people who love them. That's pretty easy, right? You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is even worse. Jesus' verses are even worse than I will get revenge on, don't worry, I'm going to smack them down, right? Oh, thank God, at least God will smack them down. Jesus is like, no, you know what? God makes his sun rise on the just and the unjust. He sends his rain on people who love him and people who spit in his face. Why don't you try to be perfect, like your father is perfect? It is impossible, right? And I think Jesus' listeners are meant to have that feeling like, that's impossible. That's impossible. It's even, I can't even barely let God take revenge for me without at least fantasizing about revenge in my head. For me to actually love someone who did that to me, who did that to my kid, who did that to my grandchild, you know, is impossible. And it is, without divine help. It is not in our nature. It is not in our nature. But Jesus is saying it's in God's nature, right? It's in God's nature. Um, can, he's saying, can you want what God wants? Can you love and forgive like God loves and forgives? Can we forgive the man who killed our brother, leaving justice in God's hands? Or do we want to nurse our blood feud and let it spiral? Um, you know, if you've ever known, it doesn't take a murder. Murder is so extreme. Most of us have not experienced murder in our lives. But it doesn't take much for us to experience the kind of black hole of unforgiveness, right? Um, if you've ever known people who've gone through a very ugly divorce, right, whether it was in your family or even friends, right, you know how, um, how you can see this on a smaller scale, the blood feud, right? You can see people forced to choose sides. You have to choose sides. Or if you don't choose one side, then you must be choosing that other person's side, right? Um, people are forced to back one story over another. They're forced to navigate minefields between the couple and between everything. It's just, very hairy. You're all looking bl I Has no one experienced that? Very <laughs> ugly divorce. Yeah, me and Margie. Me and Margie. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Bless you if you've never had people close to you get a, a divorce. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, so, yeah, one broken relationship leads to dozens of others, right? And what can stop the circle from expanding? The on only thing that can stop it is the love of God, right? The love of God. Only the belief that all the horrors we wish to visit on the other person were absorbed by Jesus, right? On the cross. And the Savior who said, you know, if you're angry, throw your rock at me, right? Which is also not satisfying. Because, like, I don't want to throw my rock at you, Jesus. I want to throw my rock at that person. But Jesus says, throw your rock at me if you're angry. You want to kill somebody, kill me. You want to tear somebody apart and tear them down with your words and your hands, tear me, right? And I will bear these things so that love and forgiveness can prevail and you can live.
So Jesus says, the only answer to the blood feud is for me to take revenge upon myself and for you to take your revenge on me. We'll see what happens in David's story when you have this blood feud and you have this spiral of violence getting out of control, right? And the only response to it, the only way to shut that down is for somebody to say, well, I'm not going to get my revenge. But what do you do with those feelings? Jesus says, take those feelings to me, right? Revenge has been taken. Because anger and the desire for revenge and unforgiveness, those things are death and not life. And I want you to live. Jesus wants us to live. So this is, this is the, the, how the, the story of the Bible is only complete when you have that last piece in place, right? Otherwise, these things don't make sense. Vengeance is mine. It is mine to repay. But we didn't know that God was going to loose the vengeance on himself, right? To stop the spiral. That's the God who loves us. Okay. Woo! You'll have time to talk about revenge and who you want to kill today. So this is good. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, two things in this story. There's so much violence in David's story. And you recognize, Jesus, that there is violence in our hearts as well. If we would be honest and admit it, Lord, there are people that we get angry at and people that we have a very hard time forgiving. And, Lord, people that we are not satisfied when we hear that you will take the punishment, Lord, because we want to give them the punishment. But, Father, open our hearts to your miraculous love. Help us to recognize how much you love us, how much you love that person that we can't stand, Father. And may your love overpower our hate and our desire for revenge. Father, we pray also for, um, for those we love, whom we have lost. I think about David and his elegy, Lord, and all the feelings that well up when we lose people in our lives, Lord. All the mixed feelings we have. We pray, Lord, that we would remember the good in them. We pray, Lord, that we would see your hand in our relationship with them and in our memories of them, Lord, and experience your comfort, um, even as David experienced your comfort, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.